0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. About 10 years ago, yours truly chanced upon one of the most interesting talks I think I've ever heard. The speaker was Dr. Grover Proctor, and he was talking about a little-known episode associated with the JFK assassination, wherein accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald tried to put a phone call through to Raleigh, North Carolina, and was denied being able to do so. It is, it is a remarkable tale. It's not very well-known, and uh, the go-to person to discuss the incident will join us in our second segment today to talk about it. Dr. Grover Proctor is an exceptionally good speaker, and uh, we look forward to speaking with him in segment number two. So make sure, your listener, you stick around till the end of the program. A few days ago, the East Bay Regional Park District put on a talk at uh, Coyote Hills about the geology of these small, remarkable hills at the south of San Francisco Bay. My uh, honey has an interest in geology, and so do I, so we went to go see what they had to say about the rocks under our feet at Coyote Hills, and boy, did I get a surprise. The geology part was pretty interesting, but what really whapped me upside the head was a mention by the docent of the Reber Plan. If I ever knew about the Reber Plan, I apparently forgot what it is I did know, because it came as a surprise to me to realize that there was in place, or at least there was an advocate for putting a plan in place to basically dam up San Francisco Bay. To quote from Wikipedia under the Reber Plan, it notes that this was a late 1940s plan to fill in parts of San Francisco Bay. It was designed and advocated by John Reber, an actor and theatrical producer. Under this plan, which is also known as the San Francisco Bay Project, the mouth of the Sacramento River from Sussoon Bay would be channelized by dams and would feed two vast freshwater lakes within the Bay, providing drinking and irrigation water to the residents and farmers of the Bay Area. The barriers would support rail and highway traffic and would create these two freshwater lakes. Between the lakes, Reba proposed the reclamation of 20,000 acres of land. It would be crossed by a freshwater channel. West of the channel would be airports, a naval base, and a pair of locks comparable in size to those of the Panama Canal. Industrial plants would be developed in the East Bay. The San Francisco Chronicle, to its great discredit, endorsed the plan's concept of a causeway to replace or supplement the San Francisco Bay Bridge, stating, There's a great many difficulties to be surmounted, just as there were for the Bay and Golden Gate bridges, but they can be a Surmounted by application of the same kind of drive and technical know how that brought the present great spans into being. And frankly, dear listener, I suggest that you, you pull up uh, a reference to this and take a look at it because it really has to be seen to be believed. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that sometime in the late 1960s, it dawned on people that the rate San Francisco Bay was being filled in for commercial development was something that needed to be addressed. Back uh, in the Gold Rush era, San Francisco Bay was fully 50% larger than it is today. And by the way, the hydraulic mine they did to extract all of the gold out of the Sierra Nevada apparently did, did, did a substantial amount of filling in the bay with silt. Nevertheless, most of it was still wet. Well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of it was still wet. And currently, having seen the light, a lot of people are attempting to restore some of the wetlands that used to exist because, well, we've discovered there's a great value to having wetlands. They're kinda, they kind of act as nature's kidneys to purify water. And of course, there's a matter of, if you do build on fill and there's an earthquake, and I don't know if you know this, but the Bay Area is prone to earthquakes, you can get what's called liquefaction. At UC Davis's annual picnic day, they had a great exhibit in the geology department showing a little model of a, of a house uh, on sand that had water beneath it. And then when you shake up the, uh, the water-sand mix, well, it becomes quicksand. Anyway, it appears in the wake of the 1960s and 70s, we dodged a, a bullet as regards to what they might do to San Francisco Bay. But the bullet we really dodged came earlier with John Reber and the Reber Plan. In an article by the San Francisco Digital History Archive, it's noted that John Reber belonged to a generation of Americans who had great faith in massive public works. Beginning with the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, an enterprise heavily subsidized by the federal government, such projects dramatically affected California's economic and social development. As early as the 1880s, state engineers studied the concept of saltwater barriers on San Francisco Bay, and in the early 20th century, a barrier at the Carquinez Straits was championed by Contra Costa business interests concerned about high saltwater content that interfered with industrial processes. Contra Costa industrialists eventually formed the Saltwater Barrier Association to lobby state officials. But by the early 30s, state engineers had convinced Contra Costa County that the solution to its problem was not a saltwater barrier, but a vast state water project that included high upstream dams on the Sacramento and San Joaquin Rivers, combined with fresh water pumped from the Delta. Sure, that'll reduce the saltwater, pump the fresh water out upstream. And of course, from this, we wound up getting the federal... Central Valley project when the state balked, and then Pat Brown later stepped in and gave us the state water project as well. My understanding was that back in the gold rush days, if you wanted to take the barnacles off the bottom of your ship, you had to sail it up the bay as far as Carquinas, where the freshwater would kill what was growing on your boats. These days, you can go miles and miles and miles east of that and still be in salt water. But I digress. It's acknowledged that John Reber had a lot of public relations skills. Apparently, he put on theatrical productions around the turn of the 20th century in California, and according to uh, Governor Hiram Johnson, seemed to know just about everybody in the state. But despite that, his efforts to uh, promote <laughs> the damming of the Bay and reclaiming vast swaths of land, it needed some what's described as technical credibility. Reber was a high school graduate with no formal engineering training. His ability to gain the support of professional engineers, thus, was crucial to his success. Herbert Hoover, we would note, was the first but not the last of such supporters. As Reber enlisted support of various uh, uh, engineers to do this, San Francisco business and political forces were among the powerful interests that rallied behind the plan. They believed it would provide an increased regional transportation access to the city's downtown. Sure, you just drive across a big berm from Oakland to San Francisco. By the way, John Reber apparently was really put out. But the fact that if you took the railroad from the east, came to the Bay Area, you couldn't go directly all the way to San Francisco. You had to stop in Oakland. This apparently, him, was a huge problem. And of course, California farmers were among the Reber plan's strongest supporters. The state's Farm Bureau Federation backed it, and its Bay Area affiliates, such as the Santa Clara County Farm Bureau, were especially enthusiastic. The valley fruit and vegetable growers, like many Bay Area and central farmers, expected to gain access to cheap irrigation water pumped out of these new lakes. Of course, that's back when we had agriculture in the Bay Area. Rebrid hoped that World War II would increase support for his proposal. He added significant military infrastructure to his plan and argued the new lakes provide a secure water supply in case of attack. And of course, <laughs> if you fill a lot of the Bay, you can move people out of the way that much quicker. A, a Cold War concern. But it's noted that after the war, the state of California turned against the Reber plan as momentum turned instead toward a major water project in the Central Valley. An Army-Navy board was put together to, to address the issue and they had some pessimistic conclusions. According to the board, Reber's proposal, quote, would result in a dislocation of industry, is considered economically unfeasible, and further is untenable from the standpoint of navigation and national interests. They did not give up, however, and went back and forth and back and forth. At this point, Congress appropriated $2.5 million to support a comprehensive Army Corps of Engineers study of the Reber plan. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, if you travel to Sausalito, you'll be able to view the Bay model. And I recommend you do this. It's quite a spectacular thing to witness. It's now been decommissioned uh, for scientific study, although a lot of effort went into making it. Tweaked, I, I guess you might say, to, 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 um, to represent reality, the reality of, of the, great, uh, the Greater Bay Delta. And we're talking about going, this model runs all the way up to Sacramento. Anyway, it, it's well worth some time taking a look at if you have never done so, or even if you had. I, I went there years ago when I guess when it was still being used for research. And I, I was and remain quite impressed by the effort. But what I didn't quite fully grasp was that the whole purpose of this thing was to show that you could do the Reber plan, or at least that's what the advocates were hoping would come out of the research. Alas, for them, the opposite conclusion was derived. And I, and I have to, to like the wording of the Army Corps of Engineers research report, which they published in 1963. It concluded the plan was infeasible by any frame of reference. It's worth noting the river plan was not killed by environmental opposition. It was defeated by the powerful interests it threatened and the experts who believed it just plain wouldn't work. Although for a laugh, you should take a look at this proposal to build giant Panama Canal-sized locks that would allow ship traffic to work its way back up to Oakland after you filled in the land around it. Anyway, yours truly is certainly glad that we didn't have the 1960s to have their can-do spirit to work toward promoting this effort. The archival report notes that uh, preservation of pristine wilderness was more important than saving a gritty waterway surrounded by a heavy populated metropolitan region. Established conservation groups became actively involved only after Save the Bay generated considerable popular support. This is in the 60s, after they had defeated the Reber Plan. Anyway, fascinating story. I suggest uh, to learn more, you, you, you check it out online, dear listener. And regardless, I think uh, a trip to Sausalito to check out the Bay Model is something you would find to be well worth your while. I I plan to go check it out again sometime soon. Anyway, at this point, I think we'll take a jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week, I guess last week, for filling up your prison with ex-presidents. This comes with the news that former Peruvian President Alejandro Toledo was extradited from the U.S. to Lima to face corruption charges. Prosecutors allege that he took $35 million in bribes in exchange for giving Brazil's Odebrecht Construction Company the contract to build the Inter-Oceana Sur Highway connecting Peru with Brazil. Toledo is the latest in a series of former leaders to be charged with corruption. He will serve as 18 months of pretrial detention in the same prison where former Presidents Alberto Fujimori and Pedro Castillo are being held. We should note that former President Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, who was ousted over corruption, at least allegations of that in 2018, I I guess he's still free, and Alan Garcia, who had succeeded Toledo, killed himself when police arrived at his home to arrest him in 2019. Anyway, it is curious that uh, the good folks down in Peru have decided to take their corrupt four presidents and put him in the slammer. Attention Merrick Garland, it can be done, sir. It was, on the other hand, recently a bad week for the champagne of beers. That's because Belgian authorities a couple weeks back destroyed a shipment of 2,352 cans of Miller High Life because the cans bore the American brewery's century-old slogan that it was the champagne of beers. Customs authorities designated the beer as counterfeit because the labeling violated strict designation of origin rules from the European Union, which it enforces to protect French sparkling wine and other regional products. And yeah, like anybody is going to mistake Miller High Life for champagne. Mr. Miller points out he's not even sure that some people would mistake it for beer. At any rate, the Comité Champagne, a French trade association that defends the interests of the wine industry in the Champagne region, paid to have the beer poured out by hand and the cans crushed by a giant press. It should be noted that Molson Coors Beverage Company, which owns the brand, doesn't export it to the EU, and Belgian authorities wouldn't say who'd ordered the beer. But man, I I guess his weekend party was spoiled. And it was an ugly week last week for medical ethics, with the news that Florida Surgeon General Joseph Lapido personally altered the results of a study of COVID vaccines last year to suggest that some formulations pose a threat to men ages 18 to 39. That was reported by Politico. An outspoken COVID vaccine skeptic at Lapidot added a line to the analysis saying that the mRNA vaccines used by Pfizer and Moderna may be causing an increased risk of cardiac related deaths in young men. Yeah, He decided just to throw that in. Meanwhile, he cut out a section stating that the risks from COVID vaccines to young men were no longer significant. Lapado then used the doctored analysis to recommend that young men do not get the vaccine, putting him, I guess you're fair to say it, at odds with the Center for Disease Control, but in line with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who appointed him. Medical experts strongly criticized. Latapo, I guess I said it wrong. It's Latapo, not Lapido. Saying he essentially reversed the findings of the study, Latapo naturally dismissed the critics, saying, "I've never been afraid of disagreement with peers or media." Of course, he, he did not add whether he was afraid of disagreement with good science. Since we haven't done a good and bad and the ugly for a while, let's do another round, Mr. McMillan. We would note that it was a good week a couple of weeks back for global warming. Well, at least if you're a baseball fan with the news that a study has found that climate change is adding about 50 home runs a year in Major League Baseball. Yes, apparently hotter, thinner air that allows balls to fly further contributed a tiny bit, at least, to a surge in home runs that has taken place since 2010, this is according to a statistical analysis by Dartmouth College. Said study co-author Justin Mankin, a Dartmouth climate scientist, Global warming is juicing home runs in Major League Baseball. It's just basic physics. It should be noted that veteran baseball players and executives said the research fits what what they've seen on the field. Philadelphia Phillies President of Baseball Operations Dave Dombrowski said we've always felt that way for years. When it's warmer, the ball travels more, and they have scientific evidence now to back that up. Well, you see, every cloud has a silver lining. It was, on the other hand, a, a bad week, I guess you'd say, for being all that you could be. But the news that facing a recruiting crisis, the U.S. Air Force has revised its admission standards to allow applicants who are obese. The maximum body fat percentage for male recruits has been raised to 26%, up from 20%. While for female recruits, it's been raised from 28% to 36%. Health officials classified the new maximum fat levels as obese, but the Air Force has met only 50% of its 2023 recruiting target. Mr. Merlin points out it was the Army that had the slogan be all that you could be, that the Air Force's slogan is actually aim high. To which I would add, if you have more weight in the aircraft, you may have to aim a little higher now. And finally, it was, it was an ugly week, I think you'd say for tech, with news that the the winner of this year's Sony's World Photography Prize informed judges that his image... A Portrait of Two Women, was created by artificial intelligence. Photographer Boris Elagson said he was testing whether artistic competitions are prepared to detect AI creations, to which he said, well, they are not. Yeah, guess not. All right, let's do some science topics. We would note uh, that the results are finally in, and it does turn out that women's small intestines are apparently longer than men's. According to the Week magazine, small intestines are on average 30 centimeters longer in women than in men. It's noted that this added length probably helps them to better absorb nutrients as needed for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Yes, and apparently Amanda Hale at North Carolina State University notes that the small intestine is all about absorption, absorption, absorption. It's where you get the vast majority of your nutrients. And that is actually a little-known fact. Most people think that food goes into your stomach and that's how it gets absorbed. (laughs) No! Your stomach exists mainly to store food and maybe decontaminate it a bit. Your large intestine exists to reabsorb water from what's inside your gut. And the heavy lifting is pretty much done by your small intestine. The magazine notes that with there being little information on the anatomic variations that can exist between different people's organs... Hale and her colleagues set out to measure the digestive organs of 21 female and 24 male adult human cadavers. And boy, you think you have a lousy job. (laughs) Anyway, they found out that on the average, the male cadaver's small intestines were slightly over four meters in length, while those of the female cadavers were 30 centimeters longer. And for the metrically challenged, that works out to about a foot. Anyway, what what this truly means is quite unclear to this correspondent, and And Mr. McMillan suggests that, you know, they're probably just full of it. Speaking of being full of it, perhaps you have one of those plant-spotting apps on your cell phone. Recently walking around out in the wildflowers of California's uh, booming spring, and uh, I seem to be the only one that didn't have such an app on on my phone, which might be okay because it turns out, according to new scientists, that smartphone apps can be as little as 4% accurate, which could theoretically put people who are foraging for food at risk. But to make a long story short, uh, researchers at University of Leeds in the U.K. evaluated six of the most popular apps. They attempted to identify 38 species of plants at their natural habitat at four locations in Ireland. Some apps scored very poorly. I guess that's where the 4% comes in, while even the best fell short of 90% accuracy. We note that these apps use artificial intelligence algorithms trained on a vast number of captioned photographs of plants. And of course, the problem on relying on such images uploaded to the internet is that they're often incorrectly labeled, which I think is possibly the great Achilles heel of using AI to uh, figure everything out. Anyway, the magazine notes that Google declined a request for interviews while the other app creators didn't respond. In this program in the past, we've talked about the great crisis of insect populations around the world and why it is they seem to be plummeting. And uh, one reason for that may be the amount of artificial lighting that is spoiling our night around the world. And of course, we've all noticed that insects flock around artificial lights, and a new study has shown that it probably isn't because they're attracted to them. Until now, the leading scientific hypothesis has been the insects use the moon's light to navigate at night and mistake artificial lights for the moon. But this doesn't explain why the insects that fly only during the day also gather around lights, and it also predicts that insects will fly in a spiral toward the light, which isn't what they really do. Anyway, they got some cameras out, and they measured what the insects were doing, and it was concluded that the insects are keeping their backs to the light. Now, this reflex, which exists in some fish, and I was quite unaware of, is a shortcut for animals to work out which way is up and keep their bodies upright. It relies on the fact that even at night, the brightest hemisphere in the visual field is usually up makes sense. It's called the dorsal light response. It's been known about for decades but hasn't been proposed as an explanation for why lights trap insects until now. Anyway, the hope is that this research is going to help find ways to minimize the damaging effects of artificial lighting on insects which might be contributing to their global decline. And by the way, if you're planning a party for the summer or any other time and you're thinking about buying one of those electrocuting devices that they sell in the hardware stores to fry the insects around your party, please don't do it. What you don't want are biting gnats and midges and mosquitoes to pester you at night, and these things do nothing to kill those bad bugs. It only kills good bugs. And finally, in a happy note, at least happy note for those who enjoy ice cream, article of The Atlantic by David Merritt-Jones points out that studies show there's a mysterious health benefit to ice cream and scientists don't want to talk about it. Anyway, to quote from the piece, back in 2018, a Harvard doctoral student named Andres Korat was presenting his research on the relationship between dairy foods and chronic disease to his thesis committee. One of his studies had led to an unusual conclusion. Among diabetics, eating a half a cup of ice cream a day was associated with a lower risk of heart problems. Needless to say, the idea that a dessert loaded with saturated fat and sugar might actually be good for you raised eyebrows. Earlier, the department chair Frank Hu instructed Korat to do some further re- digging. Could his research have been led astray by the artifact of chance or a hidden source of bias or a computational error? As Korat spelled out in the day of his defense, his debunking efforts have been largely futile. The ice cream signal was robust. Now, this apparently isn't new. Mark Pereira, an epidemiologist at University of Minnesota, told the author of this piece that he'd stumbled upon this association more than 20 years earlier, and we analyzed the hell out of the data, he said. Anyway, this relationship isn't as straightforward as one might assume, but the studies did note that tucking into a dairy-based dessert, a category that included foods such as pudding, but consisted according to her mainly of ice cream, was associated with overweight people with dramatically reduced odds of developing insulin resistance syndrome. In fact, the study found 2.5 times the size of what they found for milk. I know, Miss Willard, I don't believe any of this research was funded by Baskin-Robbins. Ben and Jerry? I, I hope not. Though personally, I don't consider Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Aww. And please don't write us over that. If you like Ben and Jerry's, just have at it. Then I suggest you try a head-to-head with Hagen dazs but that's, that's just me. Anyway, I'm not going to go through the entire article uh, with you, but it does note that near the end of a Harvard paper where the authors had arrayed the diabetes risks associated with various dairy foods was a finding that was barely mentioned in the, quote, almost exclusively, unquote, low-fat narrative given to reporters. Yet, according to their data, men who consumed two or more servings of skim or low-fat milk a day had a 22% lower risk of diabetes. But so did men who ate two or more servings of ice cream every week. Once again, the data suggested that ice cream might be the strongest diabetes prophylactic in the dairy aisle. Yet, no one seemed to want to talk about it. Anyway, for more information, dear listener, I refer you to The Atlantic so you can read the article yourself. Pretty funny stuff. Speaking of funny stuff, I, I did get a laugh over the headline I saw which noted in the wake of the relocation of the Oakland Raiders to Las Vegas, which has now been followed by the expected relocation of the Oakland Athletics to Las Vegas, the breaking news is being reported that Lake Merritt is apparently now moving to Las Vegas. And it's anticipated that Jack London Square may follow. Let's take a short break. We have a very interesting talk uh, lined up for you with Dr. Grover Proctor. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Do not go away.